0: Hello again, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash Cut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of Liza Johnson's new feature film, Elvis and Nixon, which tells the story behind the iconic photograph of Elvis Presley and President Richard M. Nixon in the White House. The film follows the events that occurred on a December morning in 1970 after the King of Rock and Roll showed up on the lawn of the White House to request a meeting with the President of the United States. The result was one of the oddest conferences ever to take place in the Oval Office. And a photograph that has become the most requested image from the national archives following a recent screening of the film at the DGA theater in new york ms johnson spoke with director betty gordon about the joys of making elvis and nixon listen on for highlights from their conversation including how ms johnson's approach to directing a comedy was shaped by her background in feature dramas and how she maintained honesty and historical integrity while telling a fictionalized version of a real-life meeting between two famous individuals enjoy
1: what a fun way to spend um, the the early evening thank you so much liza and thanks everybody for coming um, well if you don't know or if you do know liza is an amazing and incredible director Who's began her career making shorts and video installations, and uh, really with an art background, and then I think it's maybe three features within five years. 2011 was Return, then um, the amazing Hate Ship Love Ship, uh, 2013 was that, and then this. I mean, I don't know uh, many directors, let alone many women directors, who have done three features in five years and it's it's just so exciting and I'm really, really happy about that and uh, what's so interesting as well is the amazing, amazing, and I want to talk about this, performances she's gotten from actors ranging from the two young gentlemen we saw tonight, Kevin Spacey and um, uh, the great Michael Shannon who she worked with before on Return and uh, Nick Nolte, Kristen Wiig. Uh, Guy Pearce from from um, Hateship, Loveship, and then before that, John Slattery and Linda Cardellini and Michael Shannon uh, from Returns. So I'm just so uh, taken with her work with the actors that she has had in her films, and so really my first question is, what about the casting for this? How did it happen? Was it in place before you, or did you bring in, obviously, Michael Shannon? I mean... You go way back, so just let's talk about the casting, the acting, how you worked with these larger-than-life actors anyway, with (laughs) these larger-than-life characters that they had to play.
2: Oh, gosh. Um, I know, that's hard. (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you. That's a series of very kind things to say, and I appreciate it. And also, thank you for having me. to this event and also thank you for having me in your union that has also been very helpful to
1: me me too i just joined <laughs>
2: <laughs> um and uh the the i did i was involved with almost all of the casting on this film except that the film I, came to me i don't know whether it's right to say it came to me with mike attached or it came to mike and me at the same time but um uh I have to say that I think I am possibly a somewhat eccentric choice for the film because the film is very tonally different from work that I've done before. So I have to think either that the producers were being random or, or um, the, the one thing that I think is when you looked at the script you could see it really I think as a very performance driven project. and. And I, if I were to flatter myself, I would say that they thought that I could handle that based on those other films. Um, and, and you know, when you say, like, Elvis and you say Michael Shannon, like, I, I wouldn't have been able to connect those dots until I read the script. And then when I read it, I was like, oh, I, I understand. Um, because, you know, when I think about it, I think that the, the face of the historical Elvis and particularly, like, the... 1955 Elvis is really burned onto everyone's brain in a way that no other face is in the whole history of cinema or anything. And in that way, I don't think that anyone really bears very much likeness to Elvis. Uh, Even Elvis in his later years doesn't bear likeness to Elvis. Um, But I did, when I read the script, I understood why Mike was a good choice both to really develop the kind of, intimate versions of Elvis that are, I think, unusual to see in the, mm-hmm. you know, that's not usually, usually we think of him as a surface, I think, and and I, I did think he was, I knew he would be able to kind of get into the inner life of Elvis. Um, and also, I knew him to have an interest in um, absurdist dramatic literature, and so that the way that the big set piece kind of plays out like a... Um, Comedy of situation. I, I knew he would be able to blend those things. Yeah. Um, I also knew that in order for that scene to work, we would have to find someone who is as good at acting as him, which is a challenge. Um, and so I was really thrilled when Kevin wanted to join us. And and he, I mean, I think he takes an interest in um, heads of state and like thinking about what it means to embody power. <laughs> I, I know that's funny, but I really think he does. And but also. Um, in particular Nixon, like he, he reminded me uh, on Monday that he had actually screen tested for Frost Nixon. And he, he actually got out the DVD of that and studied it to prepare for this role. And he, he, he thought he had done a horrible job actually. And he, he understood why
1: he didn't get that role and corrected himself for this. But it's so interesting because of course Kevin, is even an icon because of House of Cards, so playing a kind of democratic side of the ticket, so getting to now do Nixon um, is is kind of an incredible feat. But his um, he, the way he embodies the the um, the physicality of Nixon. How much did you guys talk about that? You know, there are these elements of the hand behind the back. I mean, I was young and I remember you know the the early, when i was young watching watergate and um you know the whole uh uh collapse of the system so uh, he would have studied real clips of that too right or he news. did
2: and and um he he watched a lot of things and he really did think about the voice and the physical work of mm-hmm. course and and one one uh piece that i know we both watched was um Penny Lane and Brian Fry made this piece called Our Nixon. And they made it entirely out of the Super 8 footage shot by the Nixon administration, like where mostly Haldeman and Dwight Chapin, who's played by Evan Peters in this movie, they they were obsessed with Super 8ing each other. And it's quite a good movie. And and for Kevin's work, it was especially useful because, you know, the the Nixon here, it's not exactly like just hanging out with him in his boxer shorts or whatever. It's not like, Private Nixon, but it's also not as presentational as the kind of televised Nixon that we're more used to. Right. And and in the footage that his own team shot of him, there's a kind of in-between level of uh, presentational comportment. So so you would see him just really kind of like really hunching and lurching in his chair, or or, or just a kind of series of postures and and physical work that he could learn from.
1: Yeah, and and. I think Kevin Spacey is a physical actor, you know, even when he's on stage particularly, but but the but it's subtle, you know, he embodies that those aspects of Nixon without overplaying and and same with Michael Shannon. So, did Michael Shannon study, I mean, it's hard, you know, we've all seen Elvis, not only in movies, but how much, what did he want to take away in that way? I mean, the hair is so prominent that when you first see it, it sort of takes you back, you know, you you take a step back, whoa, this hair is so big, but, you know, that was Elvis's hair. Did you ever think of not doing that, or was it always... The, the Elvis hair, because that was so important to the impersonators who did Elvis. Like that choice was was always there. It seemed for you like, and for Michael. It seemed
2: like it was important to reflect the known mm-hmm. traits mm-hmm. of that moment, right? Like like the suit that he's wearing is cut from the same pattern as the actual suit <laughs> that Elvis wore to the White House, but just in Michael's size, yes. you know, and. And we tried to be accountable to that, including to the styling of the hair the and hair, all that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the I belt. and I think I don't think he would have let that go another direction if mm-hmm. I had wanted to, because he really did think about like any good actor, like what's happened right before this and where is he in his life. And and he, you know, he watched all kinds of things from different Elvis periods mm-hmm. and um, but probably the m- most the biggest influence on how he created the character. Uh, in conjunction with me, but I, I really have to give a lot of credit to um, Jerry Schilling who collaborated with us. Um, as directors, I'm sure many of you would understand the nightmare that it could be when the actual historical character is on your set with you. Do you know, And it, it really has this potential problem of like in that Woody Allen movie when you're like, oh, well, I just happened to have Marshall McLuhan right here. You know? <laughs> But um, Jerry is such a thoughtful and kind person and he's been around talent all his life and I knew that he would be able to share, that we did share a vision and that he could help me and Mike make this character like we wanted. And, And so what we agreed to do was try to be as emotionally true to Elvis's motivations as possible and then acknowledge the comedy of situation that Ensues, and so so Jerry took Michael to Memphis, and he took him to Graceland after hours, and he took him to like Lauderdale Courts to see the crappy little bedroom where Elvis grew up, and see what Elvis saw when he looked out the window in the morning as a child, and and um and maybe most instrumentally, he gave uh, Michael this unreleased interview. Jerry had been an editor on the documentary Elvis on Tour, um, and. There's a tiny snippet of this interview in the beginning and then the rest no one has ever heard. and that's where Mike could hear the laugh, the private laugh of Elvis that none of us have ever heard and and every minute that he was not actually shooting a take, he was walking around with his Sony disc man from 1987 and listening to uh, that interview Wow yeah Michael was yeah yeah
1: also, I think the close, you know just going back to that and and just that a lot of times you see the transformation in character when you put the clothes on which is why costume Mm -hmm. and wardrobe is and it Mm -hmm. seems very important here you know that you're using a a format almost like a news format with the with the typewritten text over the image and um, maybe even the white light that's coming in you know the choice of how the image is going to look and so Um, all of these elements almost create character in and of themselves. So besides these two, uh, Nixon and Elvis, you have the character of the White House, the character of sort of the time of this incredible 1970s moment. So maybe talk a little bit about um, the, the production design, working with costume and wardrobe, and sort of finding these very perfect uh, locations and and uh, clothes for your characters. Who is the production designer? Uh, Mara
2: lepere is the production designer. She's uh, quite wonderful, and um, she's based in New Orleans, but she's working here a lot right now. And um, Is that where you shot, New Orleans? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. you'd
1: shot there before, right? With, I uh, had, yeah. yeah. She
2: knew yeah. already, yeah. Yeah, and and they have had a really great crew base there, and I hope that continues. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's been Bobby Gendled to death or mm-hmm. not, but... Um, the um, well, I, in a way, the look of the film I think started with the work that I did with the cinematographer, and we thought that it should reflect the look of that period in color, and and that it should be bright enough to support the humor, but also have enough shadow to support the depth of character. There's a, there's some tonal range mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm. scenes, you know, and mm-hmm. and um, and. So then with Mara, we worked um, together. And it was very challenging because it's not a high-budget film. And f- I think she actually had the hardest job and the most budget limitations because not only is it period-specific, but it's historically specific. Yeah. And um, I'm sure she'll be very flattered when I tell her the kind things that you just said. And also, something that that I can't help but remember is that her department also Essentially fact-checked the movie do you know like we would get these scenes that would be like about Arthur Crudup's guitar pick And then they would come back and be like we were trying to get Arthur Crudup's guitar pick And it turns out Arthur Crudup doesn't play with a pick You know and 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 that's fantastic that happened on almost every scene that they would as They tried to produce the material world recognize uh, some factual challenges in the scenario, you know and um, and I guess I've also never done a period piece before this, and I um, I worked with um, a person I like to think of as a wig genius, who I highly recommend to you for all your wig-based Please. needs <laughs> in the future, is um, Adrutha Roy. She had she had won the hair Oscar actually the year before for um, Dallas Buyers Club, and. I guess I'll publicly tell this embarrassing story about myself. But in terms of learning to respect craft, yes. but I met her, and she's she's from Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Her first husband was a session musician who played with Elvis. She really knew the world of the film, and she was like, Liza, do you know how I got the idea for Jared Leto's wig in Dallas Buyers Club? And this is where I'm, a, either a kind of an apple or a person who's learning, however you want to look at that. But but what I thought in my mind was you get ideas for a wig, do you know? And, and <laughs> okay, so I'll never think that again because what I learned was like, of course you do. Right, do you know, right. and, and- Did you say that out loud? Coor- no, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, okay. And yeah, so I, I no, I said, oh no, how did you get that idea? Oh, yeah. And she said, um, well, do you know how sometimes if you're out in the parking lot and it's like really late, maybe the sun's coming up and like you look down on the ground and you see just like one piece of weave, and I was like, actually, yes. Uh. And, and she was like, well, that's what I thought for his idea. That was the image I got. So I just took his wig out in the parking lot and I ran over it six times with the car and then I put it on him and that's how I styled it. It's fantastic. And, and, I, and I guess what I learned about period work, I, you know, and this may be well known to all of you, but this is the time I learned it, is that it looked kind of like 1970. And then when people walked in in their clothes and their hair in the background, it was 1970, and I, I suddenly realized that period realism, it, like bringing a real—I se- don't know if that's realism—but you know, bringing realistic sense of another time, is actually all about background hair and costume.
1: Yeah, no, and and it's 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 so important. Um, also, uh, the White House where was so that was in North Carolina, in um, in um, uh, New Orleans. Um, how much does it actually, because we've now seen the White House in House of Cards as well. So was it pretty much you know, kind of true to like the hallway with the paintings and the staircase or was that kind of an approximation or like how true to White House um, is it?
2: The Oval Office and the little chamber outside it and right. the secretary's office that's are, pretty good. that's how they really are. Mm-hmm. And, it, and they're also historically accurate, like that's the kind of curtains they had at that time. Mm-hmm. And the best thing that happened to me is I was behind on House of Cards, so I had never seen Kevin Spacey be the president in that uh, room yes. before, and that was great, because then I didn't have to be like, oh, I have to differentiate myself from House of Cards. You yeah, know, definitely, yes. yeah. Um, and uh, the hallways, though, are wildly cheated. Like, I don't think I even know where those rooms are supposed to be in relation to each right, other, right. But, I, but because they have a kind of federal style that has a grandness to it, I feel at least I hope that people don't think about it too much or it doesn't take you out of it too much that, that they're they might be unlike the White House.
1: Yeah, yeah. No. I mean you have the sense of this, you know, this this place that we, you know, never really see the inside of except for when we have press conferences, et cetera. But, you know, just the idea of trying to replicate it would be huge, like, okay, huh, how are we gonna do this? So I just felt strongly that your attention to detail in all aspects, whether it is costume, hair, uh, production design, is really important. And I think that your, if you've seen her earlier work, um, the nuance of realism is something that um, you care about a lot. And in the other films, it's based on location or it's based on you really understanding uh, these moments of truth. And here you have moments of truth a different style like if we want to say your earlier work or your other work is slightly more even your early, early work non-actors so just the trajectory is so interesting like your eye as an observer and now as a kind of shaper of you know the art around but also the character is, is so interesting was this tonally I guess what I'm getting to is is this tonally this more comedic although we wouldn't say comedy, what, right? Would we call this more comedic, but not a comedy? Or would we call, I'm, I'm not sure because it has such a distinctive style uh, that it's it's comedy, but there are these moments of um, almost drama. Uh, dramedy? Is that what we call it these days? I, Black I, comedy. I yeah. have to say, yeah.
2: I, I fi- this is a terrible thing, but the word dramedy is probably, it, I might have done that more than one time, but I find that word to be like Confused. Frappuccino, like yeah. a fake word. yeah you know? like, yeah, I, I feel I that the know. movie ends well and therefore it probably is a actual comedy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but if some people want to call it something else, I, I would probably be flattered by that too.
1: But I guess where, where I was going is just how given your earlier work, which is very nuanced and very understated and sort of look looking for these sort of small moments in the life of somebody, um, how did you treat this film? differently or maybe you didn't treat it differently at all like what was your approach as a director when your other films are much more about You know sort of realistic moments in the lives of characters who are not big characters who are small characters a housekeeper a woman returning from um, Iraq, so just was your approach different?
2: Well for sure it was the biggest question that the actors had for me, Mm -hmm. do you know like like Michael Shannon, Kevin Spacey—they've made a character before, you know. They and they—they they need my calibration, they need my guidance, but they—they they know how to create a character, mm-hmm. right? And but the 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 thing that they that is a little puzzling about the script, and that we work together to find, is is really like, what is the tone of this movie? Mm-hmm. And 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 I said that I did think that it is funny, but that it has to be played perfectly straight and they just have to think about what do their characters really want and let the humor come from the situation. And And it really came to the point, like there were a couple of jokes written into the movie and and Johnny Knoxville would always be the joke annihilator and he was just like, this is not a joke comedy, this is a, a different kind of comedy and, and they would refuse to say the jokes that were written. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, Th- I guess that's what I was getting at too. It's like very nuanced comedy in a way and... Um uh it doesn't hit you over the head, it kind of slides up underneath, which, you know, is is wonderful. You know, it just you 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 think you know what it is, and then all of a sudden, you know, the audience is laughing and then they're not laughing, you know. So I, I like the way it ebbs and flows like that. And that's that's you really working, I think, to find the tone. Um, and with, with the actors too. So what were the conversations about that? Were they, you know, sometimes in dialogue or in moments of um staging and blocking because that's a huge chore and task in for a director in this kind of a piece where there are a lot of like this w- the the whole second half of the movie takes place more or less in one room. So um you know what was that like for you in terms of the work with um staging and dialogue changes how much
2: um I think that the main work that we did to find the tone was you know we talked about tradition comic traditions that that we all acknowledge to be not just silly right like like what is a classical satire and are there ways that you know just because it's funny it doesn't mean it's mocking mm-hmm. the characters and and you know we tried to think of examples of things like that and then and then to try to calibrate the level of physical caricature versus something more delicate mm-hmm. and um and at a certain point, while we were shooting that big set piece, um, Kevin Spacey was like, "I feel like I'm in Doctor Strangelove,"
1: <laughs>
2: and that made I, I I don't actually I you know I would be so flattered if that were true, but but I I'm not sure that that is true. But it made Mike and me really happy because we knew that that was Elvis's favorite movie, uh, and ah, and kidding. no, and we were just <laughs> like, "Ooh, maybe we maybe we did the right thing if we brought it back to yes, Elvis's favorite yeah, movie."
1: Yeah. That's such an interesting comment. That's so much more exaggerated though, but at a certain moment he must have felt like, whoa, this is like this wide-angle lens of exaggeration. Um, what about the, the staging? Um, how did you keep it alive? You know, how did you keep it from just being two guys in a room? Because it's so much more than that. I mean, how much planning did you do, uh, rehearsal, blocking rehearsals, etc.? um much less than
2: i would have liked uh it, we thought that we would have a rehearsal period but in the end michael couldn't come to the rehearsal period and and it was very um had a kind of high wire quality that i wouldn't have asked for mm-hmm. although i i'm not sure that it was bad for the film in the end but it meant that we really were blocking and shooting on the fly, and and I, I could perceive that they probably needed to move around the room because it was a long scene, and that was like kind of all I knew when we started to shoot. And um, I don't really think that's the best way to go into a situation, but I do think that the effect of that is that we didn't quite know what was going to happen, and so I think that. L- like what Kevin said to me the other day was that it really does seem like that you can see on the screen the way that they're actually listening to each other and that the kind of anarchic benefits of that chaos were that the, these kind of fugitive surprises that would happen as they played against each other were honestly surprising them, you know, and and they did do improv. Like um, Kevin made up a lot of buttons for the ends of the scenes and that stayed in the cut and... Um, Uh, my favorite very deliberate improvisation that Mike did was he didn't tell any of us this but as the scene builds and he does the karate and then they go to slap the knuckles you know (laughs) Um, you know no one knew that he was going to improvise the word Cambodia when he finally you know gets him And, and I think that is the funniest line in the movie and we all like wept with laughter and and Kevin was genuinely surprised because he couldn't have seen that coming. Oh, that's great.
1: Yeah, because, you know, there is this feeling of, of u- the use of the space. It's really well used, of course, because Elvis w- doesn't follow any of the instructions that he gets, so we're all leaning in, which is fantastic, and um, you you get that sense of um, freshness. Um, but does Elvis get the last word? You know, every, every beat of seeing that he... That Elvis kind of commands the the presence of the room. I wonder, you know, if it really would have been like that. Maybe because this is hypothetical, right? Like there is no real text of the meeting. There's just the photograph.
2: I, no, I think it is. Uh, let's say perhaps trying to optimize what are some of the advantages of fiction, right? That that. Um, you know, there's a lot of that is known about Elvis, there's a lot that's known about Nixon, there's a lot of real documents, mm-hmm. like the, the letter that he wrote is word for word, yeah. verbatim. Haldeman really did write that stuff in the margin of the memo. Um, but there is no archive really of like, what expressions might have passed across Nixon's face when Elvis entered the Oval Office, or what what feelings do powerful men have at that scale when they're stuck together, and, and so, you know, so we we ask Jerry, do you think it's plausible that at moments they might have felt pulses of competition? Do you think that Elvis might have felt that he wanted to flatter him <laughs> to get what he wants? Do you think that he might have at some point uh, wanted to give something generous and performative, such as a karate demonstration, mm-hmm. to Nixon? You know, and I don't think he did karate for Nixon, but he did do it for the mayor of Memphis, right? right? And so, so like. So that, so that what you know, especially with Jerry with us, like having some level of accountability, yes. I think really helped keep us honest and allowed Mike to be a soulful version instead of a, a mockery. Uh-huh. But and and that was how we would try to frame the truth to character is is not so much did he eat the M and M's, because we don't know. You know, I find it very unlikely that the White House protocol would disallow you to eat the M and M's. You know, I think that probably didn't happen, but might he have wondered, hmm, if I pick this up, is the president gonna make me put it down? Right. Th- that we found true to character. Right,
1: that's interesting. So the script came to you, let's just talk a little bit about the, the that's something, you've you've written the other scripts that you've directed or you've I co-written. One, I wrote one of them. Right, and you co-wrote. I, I didn't. You didn't, so I was gonna ask you, was this very different because it came to you in a last draft or did you did you work on the writing as well?
2: I I didn't work on the writing, um, but I,
1: uh, there were a
2: few things that were important to me that we achieved as rehearsal changes.
1: Can you name one or two of them? Um, Well, one, it wasn't
2: important to me at first, but one day actually, Bud Crow came to set, like I was just standing there on set, and I was like, oh, it's a Watergate felon, you know? And, (laughs) and, um, And he was lovely, and he, happily thought it was charming and amusing (laughs) what we were doing but he was like it it was scripted in that scene where elvis plays the little joke and tries to tell bud crow that he still has a gun with him it was scripted that he really did still have the gun with him and bud was like look this is all charming thank you for your interest but you have to understand the nature of assassination in this historical period and there's no way on god's green earth that i would ever have let Anyone, even Elvis Presley, into the Oval Office with a gun. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that that you know I think it made the scene better because then it could show Elvis's sense of humor yeah. and playfulness. Um, and also in the scene, um, in the donut shop, like that story was a story that Elvis liked to tell. And from Elvis's point of view, it was a story about his own self-sufficiency when he was out without the mafia, you know, mm-hmm. and how he could handle himself. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, there were two things that were important. One is that, you know, you have to reverse the camera, and when Elvis tells the story, you have no sense of how anyone else in the room might have felt about it, and I kind of thought they might not have thought it was hilarious, you know, or or whatever. And additionally, the whole story is within the bubble of the Elvis universe and the bubble of the Nixon universe, but they're both obsessed with the counterculture and the social changes that are taking place in the country at that time. And so. So I, I wanted for that scene to be able to acknowledge the point of view of the other people in the donut shop, and I felt that they also had to take up the space that, in, you know, th- there's more than one kind of person in that donut shop, but they had to show some kind of change from the like 1955 Elvis world into like a 1970 that includes black power and the ability to say original my ass, you know, and, and, um, and it was a really wonderful rehearsal experience, actually, because I didn't know what Jerry Schilling was going to say to that, and he was like, "Hell yes!" And and I I found that very moving that he, you know, thought that was
1: important too. Yeah. Um, what about the? Uh, was it in the script when um, this the Iraqis and the Syrians? Was that improv?
2: Yeah, it was actually yeah. supposed to be something about Cambodia and. Uh, I'm glad that we changed it because Mike ended up making up the Cambodia yes, line. Yeah. But um also Kevin had an ethical problem with it which I I I'm not sure I can remember or even if I understood it at the time but he had one. He just thought it might be rude to Cambodians or something. Mm-hmm. And so so Carrie Elvis was there that day and we went and worked with him and we tried to think about the legacy of Nixon and what are some things that are still really active in our world that come from that time. Mm-hmm. And um it is actually true that that was a problem in that moment and that was how Nixon handled it. Mm-hmm. And and so we landed on that as something that was likely to feel like the twinge of being meaningful.
1: Yeah. Now. It's it's such a it didn't the first time I saw it because I saw it twice, it it didn't necessarily phase me, but this time I went, Whoa, where's that from? Which is interesting because it 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 makes it present in a way, just for that one second, you know. And you then you go back into the Cambodia thing after. Yeah, yeah, it's quite strange, but uh, a kind of a nice surprise. Yeah, I think it's not like
2: the most toothsome critique (laughs) or satire that has ever. I find it very gentle towards a figure who, whose enduring legacy remains, I would say, very real, and of which I am not really a fan. And and so. I I was happy that he arrived at something that does kind of Zing.
1: Yeah, a good singer. Um, what about the music? I mean, certainly we are thinking Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley music, but you had really interesting choices. We were just talking at the back of the theater. The music that you used, was that in your head? Was that something that came from kind of watching cuts and figuring out how would you, what is score? Um, I mean, there's some score and a lot of really great choices for music go to sweating, blood, sweat, and tears, we were talking about, that style. Um what how did when did that come in? Toward toward post-production or earlier?
2: Uh mostly in post, except for the credence which we yeah, w- which he sings on camera. But yeah. um I I thought it would be good to find things that reflect that moment. Mm. Um and I tried to make it as regionalist as possible so that it's you know mostly mm-hmm. Memphis or Southern kind of soul into funk 1970 mm-hmm. period. Um and um that, you know, I would have maybe liked to use some Elvis music, but the that would have had to be handled differently by the production before my arrival on the scene, basically. Yeah, you, it
1: would have cost fortune, right? Or maybe not. Do you know what depending. I really
2: wanted was there's three <laughs> times that I know of that Elvis actually covered the Beatles. <sighs> and I, I don't know what would be harder to clear or more expensive than <laughs> Elvis Presley singing the Beatles, but I, I encourage you all to go listen to how he sings something in The Way She Moves. Wow, I don't think <laughs>
1: I've ever heard that. You can you can find it online or something. Yeah, like and, yeah. and you know, and there you is too. all this
2: lore about him hating the Beatles or feeling replaced by the Beatles. Yeah. But I don't think he would have covered three of their
1: songs if he really hated them. Yeah, such a mixed message, really. When you're so fascinated by, you know, something, there's a kind of a love-hate relationship there. Yeah, that's a that's such a fascinating idea. Um, was there uh, a shooting schedule? How many days were you shooting, or was it shorter?
2: I think it was 23 like t- days,
1: which is pretty tight, you know. Given there's so much dialogue. And sort of all that nuance. So, 23 days, and um, you must have been working pretty fast. Longer takes, in the sense that you know, when you're in the room, you have some, you have a lot of movement, so you're trying to work for long takes rather than a kind of edited um, shot by shot. Did you storyboard or anything? Probably not. You said because you didn't have too much rehearsal time.
2: Um, we shot listed as thoroughly as we could, could, and we just tried to be responsive to the situation. Yeah, yeah.
1: yes, yes. Um, and and finally, um, would uh, d- would they see dailies or anything like that, or did you kind of hold back on that? D- did either actor want to see how? I'm
2: trying to remember. I don't think they did. Want- Mike definitely doesn't look at them. Right. I-, I think. I can't remember if Kevin likes to look at them or not. Mm-hmm. I I feel like. At that level, people know what they need. And if, if, like, like on my second film, Guy Pierce, he, what he needs is to see the dailies. And so I think he should have that.
1: But I I don't remember them wanting to. Maybe they didn't. And it was such a short shooting time that you want to be so totally in it and immersed if you're the actor that somehow stepping outside of it would become a comment on it rather than the thing that you were going for. And we also talked just in the back before we came up here about how the, uh, characters around the sort of two central characters added an enormous amount of humor and reaction shots. And we talked about that just a second ago. How, is that something that you found in editing or did you know beforehand? I mean, you did such a beautiful job casting the other characters around. I mean, Tracy Letts, huge hero of mine. Oh, um, she's dreamy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, just all of the choices were just so interesting. Um, so how thank much, you. how much of that, uh, I mean, you're covering it all, and you were so right to make sure that those characters could give us access in a way to what was happening, even though we had our own access as well.
2: It was great. Well, thank you. I guess i I must have known. Some on some level to do that because I shot it, but I, I don't think I really knew how important it would be until later.
1: And as you're in the editing room and and but you were smart like you know directors More should be to or cover yeah. you know cover what you can because you never know what might be useful later on, which is so true. Um, I would love to take questions. We would love to if anybody has. I see you. Okay, you both of you next to each other, one and then the other. Okay.
2: Well, it really stood out in the script when you read it. It's it's like you know, boom, right angles of tone, and and um, I actually thought that was part of what's wonderful about the script. Like it's a bit of a weirdo that way, do you know. And and I like a weirdo, so I was excited about that. But I also I was nervous about it because I was afraid I was going to get in trouble for it. Um, that that Michael Shannon would do what he did, which I think is incredible. And that then somebody up the food chain somewhere would be like, but this is a comedy and and so <laughs> the main thing that I did was point out to everyone that there were all these tonal changes and say, do you want this because if you don't want this, you have to get someone to write it different right now because that is out there. Like that's what's in your script. don't you you know I'm sending you an email in writing right now that says that it has these wild tone changes. And um, you know, anyway that went as predicted but um, <laughs> but the the um, I think what it the main thing that it did was create a spine of you know points for Michael to connect as a performer right so that the way he enters the Oval Office is completely defined by that scene being there you know and it actually, even the way that he is in the limo, I think is defined by that scene being there because how do you get to that scene? You know, and and, like, for example, the scene in the limo was scripted as a kind of eye of the tiger pump up thing, you know, with him sticking his head out the sunroof and Mara's department found out they didn't have sunroofs yet in 1970, you know, and, and, (laughs) but most importantly, Michael was like, well, if I'm gonna do that scene and if Elvis is the person that I now know him to be, I'm not going to be all eye of the tiger in the limo, and 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 really finding a way to kind of, because he made that character coherent, the right angles that were in the script have, I think they have some somewhere to come back to or something. Mm-hmm. Does it, does that address your question? Yeah. Oh yeah, that conversation was way over by the time that we we met Amazon, but they bought the film uh, off of a trailer that. I was like, I had been cutting for like two weeks and they made a trailer that they showed it in the marketplace at Cannes last year. And and Jerry Schilling was it was all comedy. There's nothing serious about Elvis in it. And Jerry saw it and he was like, Liza, should we be worried about this trailer? And I was like, Oh, Jerry, no one buys a film off of a trailer. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. And damned if they didn't buy it off of the trailer. And and um and I have to, I really can't say enough good things about them they're such a wonderful partner and the the actual people that work there like ted hope and michael chong and bob Bernie, are so committed to a kind of really specific independent vision and you know what they want to start a brand that's about what they call quality films and they think that the way to do that is to support the director and the and and a coherent vision and and um And they have not only that intention, but they have the skills to back it up. And they, they, I couldn't ask for a better partner.
1: Time for one more question. Yes, go ahead. I don't know.
2: I did, um, I have a friend who's writing a memoir and, and one chapter of it, he reads, um, a part of John Dean's biography, uh, when John Dean learns that the San Francisco theater company, The Coquettes, have made this piece called Trisha's Wedding, and it's I I, I can't wait for uh, my friend's book to come out because because it's really about like all the same cast of characters that you see here assembling and trying to figure out how to how to respond to this kind of drag-based theater company interpreting Trisha Nixon's wedding, and um, anyway I don't I don't know what they would think and. And I have to say, it is humbling, um, even with a figure like Nixon, who I would like to think I would have voted for McGovern, you know, like, like even with a figure like him, he is still a real person, and so was Elvis. They're both so big that they seem imaginary, but they're not. Um, Bud Crow and Jerry Schilling are both real, and I, I am... Grateful and surprised that they both love the project, um, and and the, I don't know. The humbling thing is that people really do get to have whatever reaction they have, and and you know I would hope that they would enjoy it as one of the gentler and and kind of more charming interpretations of their father, but I people really get to have what reaction they have, and if they don't like it, I you know I I. I offer it in relatively good faith, but that's really up to them.
1: Thank you so much, Liza. This was such a treat. Thank you, everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to this DGA Q&A. You can watch all of our award season Q&As on our website or our YouTube channel. You can also check out any of our preview podcast episodes from earlier this season. And stay subscribed to The Director's Cut for more Q&As and highlights from other DGA events as well as selections from our archive. Also on our website, you can explore our visual history program with long-form oral history interviews that delve deep into the careers of veteran DGA members. Check out the program at dga.org slash craft visual history. If you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes or our SoundCloud page so you won't miss an episode. And leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.